those of you that are watching and joining us online, today will be a little bit different. Let me give you an idea of what's going to happen next week. Um, next week, we're going to start a church campaign, a purpose-driven um, life kind of 2.0. And so what will happen is, beginning next Sunday, I'll preach a series. Uh, I'll preach a message, and then for seven days, we're going to be focused on devotions, a devotional from those that, that topic for seven days, and then the following Sunday we'll do that. So these of you watching online, if you want to follow with us, if between now and Sunday you can uh, order uh, this book, um, The Purpose Driven Life, What Am I on Earth? What on Earth Am I Here For? Uh, you can get it off of Amazon, and uh, you can follow with us because we'll be starting this next Sunday. So just want to let you be aware of that. Uh, this morning... Uh, we have uh, with us one of our missionaries from Papua New Guinea, uh, Aaron Luce, uh, his wife Lori and their girls. And uh, we have supported Aaron, I think, from the beginning, haven't we? Yeah. So, uh, and they will be sharing with you, he'll be sharing with you a little bit about his, uh, about their ministry, and then he'll also be uh, sharing the Word of God with us, with us this morning. So, um, we are excited for um, how God's used them and and. Love them to death. So anyway, Aaron, it's all yours. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be here and to share with you. And I really appreciate that last song, Rescue the Perishing, and it ties in beautifully with the message today. And the message today is the first missionary that Jesus sent. Now, this is a story that's in the Gospels, and I don't know if you know who that is. Who's the first missionary that Jesus sent? But it was an important story, and it's in three of the four Gospel books. It's the first time I'm going to be preaching from this passage of the Bible uh, in English, but I think it's really good because it tells us more about Jesus, about people, and about missions. So that's what we're going to look at. Before I get into that, though, I want to just talk to you a little bit about who I am and some of my connections with you guys. Uh, some of our stories go way back. And if I went with a lot of the families here, we could talk about high school days and even before that. Um, but for those of you who are new or don't know, my grandpa is here, Tony Luce, and he is a family member that I admire and has been here for years and years. So that is my connection through family here. Um, also with Mrs. Thomas, when she came to this area of the country, their very first year here in the Sioux City area, she was not the phenomenal kindergarten teacher that she is now. She was a phenomenal fourth grade teacher. And I was in fourth grade at the time. So I sat under her tutelage, and as good as that year was, when I got into fifth grade, I couldn't wait for fifth and sixth to be done, because then I got to be a big seventh grader to go into the youth group where PJ was the youth pastor at that time. So he was my youth pastor, and the two of them even taught a class in high school that was called creative writing that I was a part of. Um, he was my Bible quiz coach. He actually helped me develop some of my very first sermons when I was in high school. So I go back quite a ways with them as well. And it's good to now be a part of the bigger family with you all. Now, our family is 
My wife's name is Lori, and uh, we have four girls. And um, our oldest is two years out of high school. She finished Bible school and uh, is going to be going on with missionary training this fall. Our second is Sierra. She's training to be a nurse. And then Kylie is our ninth grader, and Briella is our third grader. So that's our family this last year. If we go back to when we first left for the mission field, um, we had one daughter, and that was Avalon. She had just turned one. 2001 is when we left for PNG. And like PJ said, you guys have been with us on this journey from the beginning. Now, we moved into a tribe in Papua New Guinea, which is north of Australia, we moved into a tribe called the Potpatar. Okay? Not Pop Tart, but Potpatar. Okay? And we moved there, and it's a people group of 10,000 people that have their own distinct language, which is Potpatar. And uh, we moved into there and began to develop relationships, get to know their culture, get to know their language. And as you see from the picture, that is not. Iowa. They are on the ocean, on a long, skinny island that has 21 other people groups spread out on this island, with a mountain range in between where they have their gardens. It's not combinable. There's no tractors there, no combines, but it's working, leaning into the side of the mountains, working for their survival. And uh, Holly Springs was also a part of that journey. In 2004, you all sent a team over and uh, helped finish off our under our house and put in an office. In 2007, another team was sent to help us uh, fix up our boat so we could get back and forth because we'd take a three-hour trip across to the other island every two months in order to get our supplies. So that is a little bit about our life in Poptar. And I'm going to be sharing more about that later on. But first, let's get into the text of our story this morning about the first missionary that Jesus sent. From Mark chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, For we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again, not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs! Allow us to go into them! He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, 
rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. A little bit about the context of this area called the Gerasenes. This was a predominantly Gentile area. And Jesus had left his side of the lake, Capernaum, and had gone across to this mostly Gentile area. Now, there were Jews scattered around, but there were all these towns on this side of the lake that were filled with these folks. And the place where they landed was not the greatest place. There were cliffs around, and there were tombs, and there was this crazy man that was demon-possessed. Now, it says in our text that they, when they landed, that they there is his disciples. Jesus had gone over with his disciples and they had just gone through this storm and now they land here. And in the rest of the chapter, you hardly even see the disciples because I believe they're pretty scared and they're watching what's going on. Because for the Jewish disciples, being around these Gentiles was not a real good thing. You weren't supposed to interact with them, eat with them, worship with them. They were a bit unclean. And then... They pulled up to shore by tombstones or by tombs. Man, for the Jews, that's where the dead bodies were. And again, that spoke of uncleanness, being ceremonially unclean. And then on the hillside, guess what? Pigs. For the Jews, ceremonially unclean. And now there's this demon-possessed man. For them, this was a place of spiritual darkness. This was a place of danger. I think the disciples would have much rather preferred to be back on the other side of the lake in a place called Cana at a wedding feast, enjoying some water that had been turned to wine. They were pretty happy with Jesus then. I mean, it was pretty easy to follow him in that situation, where you're used to all the festivals and the customs and you have the best wine ever. But now, Jesus had led them into this area way outside their comfort zone. So here they were. And I think what it teaches us about Jesus is this. He cared about all people. Now when Jesus came into the world, he came to be the savior of the world world. But during his earthly ministry, it was mostly focused on the Jewish people. He came to present himself to them as their Messiah and was ultimately rejected and crucified. Now, he did spend some time in other places. I think you'll remember the the story from John 4 where Jesus takes his disciples. Again, they really didn't want to go through Samaria. They would prefer to take the longer route around Samaria through the middle of Israel. But Jesus took them through the middle of it and said, we must go, and met with a Samaritan woman, told her that he was the Messiah. The first one he told that he was the Messiah. And then he spent another two days in the town there, John four forty one says this, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. See, Jesus, 
He came to this earthly ministry, mostly focused on the Jews, but he spent time with the Samaritans. And now at the beginning of his ministry, here in Mark 5, Jesus has gone across the lake, in a sense, kind of like an overseas missionary, right? He's gone across the lake to this other people group and had stopped in one of the worst places possible because he cared about this man and these people. God's heart has always than for the nations. You see this in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, where again, God was working with the Israelites and the Jewish people, but he sent Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, to warn them so that God wouldn't destroy them. Because God cares for people. We see it all through the Bible. Remember the last words of Jesus, too. One of the last things he said before leaving the earth. Go and make disciples of every nation. God has a heart for every people of the group. And here in Mark 5, Jesus ventures outside the comfort zone of his own culture there, and outside the comfort zone of his disciples to take his message to another people. That word, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. That word nations in the original is ethnos. The mission that we, uh, my wife and I are serving with used to be called New Tribes Mission. Um, In Papua New Guinea, it's still called New Tribes Mission because we're still focused mostly on tribal groups. But now, in the States, it's changed because there are unreached people groups throughout the world that are not just tribal. And so ethnos, representing all nations of the world, is the name that is used. It's the same word that is used in Revelation 7-9 when Jesus says, Or when John sees the future in heaven and says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count for every ethnos, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And that's what we get to look forward to. The ethnos, the nations of the world being before His throne. And who has He done That work through unlikely candidates to be his missionaries and take his word. Now, Ethnos 360, that 360 represents the entirety of the globe, 360 degrees around the globe. 40% of the world is still considered unreached. And what I mean by unreached is less than 2% of that people group have access to the gospel in their own language. We have how many translations in English? How many churches? How many radio stations? And yet 40% of the world does not have access to the gospel. 360 also represents the full circle ministry of work. Because in the ministry that we have, it's not just a one-year thing, a two-year thing. It's a long-term commitment 
that involves going in and reaching a full circle. And I want to tell you a little bit about what that looked like for us. We moved in with the Papatar people, built a house there, um, eventually got adopted into their different clans there in the tribe. We developed relationships. We got to know their culture on a deep level. We got to know their language. We studied it out in the village, up in the mountain, on the shore, in the office. In fact, that picture on the right there, that's in my office with one of the Papatar guys. That was the office built by Holly Springs Bible Fellowship back in 2003. Once we learned their language, we developed a literacy program, finding out which syllables they used the most. They were obviously fluent in their own language, but it hadn't been developed and written where they could learn to read and write. So we created a literacy program for them and taught them how to read and write their own language. With the ultimate purpose, we wanted them to be able to read God's word. But by God's grace, not only has that happened, but we've been able to give this literacy program into elementary schools throughout Papatar that are now teaching their kids how to read and write. We also uh, did translation. And tell you what, what an awesome opportunity to be able to study God's word and translate it into another language and watch it come alive as you read it to people. We were able to write Bible study books and curriculum, and we were able to teach God's word to them, starting with Genesis 1-1, about who God was and about who we are, and give the plan of redemption to them in their own language. Eventually, as we had believers, the church was born, and uh, we were able to see that grow. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Kunzers or were over there on one of those trips and saw their house, this is actually the Kunzers' house that the church has now overtaken and used as their church. They've taken out all the walls and, and moved out past the veranda, extended it, and uh, that is where they meet. And they're uh, 15 hours ahead of us, so they do meet on Sunday mornings as well, but it's already uh, Monday over there. <clears throat> Not only that, but we were able to disciple believers to meet, study, pray, lead, and carry on the ministry. To the point where now we are no longer living in the village full-time, but occasionally go back to visit them because they're standing on their own. And one of the most encouraging things to my heart is when we go back and they're in these little groups like this, praying, studying, encouraging each other to go on. Now, Papatar is just one of the people groups in Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is the most diverse country in the world as far as language groups. There's 860 distinct languages in Papua New Guinea. 9.1 million people. And to our best estimates, we estimate that about 300 people groups, 300 of those 860 languages, are still without the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, we are no longer full-time in the Papatar. We've joined the leadership team. And when I go back in a few months, I'll be stepping into the directing and manager role for the field. 
And what that means is I'm going to be working with a small group of guys to oversee basically four areas. We're going to oversee the active church plants. Now, out of those 860 languages, we have 44 of them where we have missionary teams. That they are somewhere in the process of moving in or establishing a church and discipling. They're somewhere in that journey. So, Lori and I get to be part of helping those teams do what we did, but in a different language and a different culture. At times I get to travel with Lori, at times by myself. The bottom right picture is one of the last trips I made into one of these areas where a missionary is still learning the language. It's actually uh, on an island that is a volcano. It's one mile across, and you can see it behind my shoulder as we leave on the boat. And it was going off. It almost continually goes off, and if it stops going off, you worry. Because then when it does go off, it makes a big boom and lots of lava. And that's where one of our missionary teams is at, learning their language. And we get to go in about every six months, along with some other consultants, to help give them tools and strategies for the next step in this journey. Besides that active work, church planning work, another area we do is work with our 42 people groups where missionaries are no longer present. So it just so happens that we're in 86 Of the 860 language, just 10% is where we work. So 42 of them are like Papatar now. The missionaries are no longer on the ground. But I'm going to be working with guys to continue to encourage those national churches and those leaders and those pastors. And we're doing things to further equip them and train them and bring them together and help them reach more and more villages within their own people groups and even beyond their borders to other people groups. The third area that we're going to be helping and overseeing is the support missionaries. We have about 150 adults that are what we call support missionaries throughout Papua New Guinea. That includes our business office workers, our pilots, our IT folks, our school teachers, our center managers, our mechanics. It's all of those guys. Some of them are volunteers. Some of them are full-time. Our greatest need right now is doctors and school teachers. So if you know somebody that could fill that need, let's talk afterwards. The last area that we're going to be covering when we go back um, is the personnel side. And that has to do everything with uh, working with new missionaries that come onto the field, any personnel issues that come up, working with our government to keep all our visas and everything proper. And right now it's a lot with COVID because of all the mandates and the things going on there, working with our government, working with our people, trying to get things right there. And um, you see up in the left corner there, that's a picture of me doing, our internet is improving slowly in New Guinea. And during the COVID season, right before we left, there was a lot more online stuff that we had to do. We're still trying to work through some of that. In the right corner, upper right corner, is my wife as one of those support missionaries now. She was working in the print shop, printing literacy materials and Bible lessons and portions of scriptures in one of those 86 languages where we work. It's a big job in New Guinea because each of those language groups 
each of those people groups are unique. And even in our story. Now, in our story, it talked about pigs, right? All right. You guys, probably a lot of you know a lot more about pigs than I do. Um, But in Mark 5, in Gerasenes, these 2,000 pigs, it was not a hog farm. Okay? It wasn't a company or, or one pig farmer. This was for that community, all those towns. People would own individual pigs or small herds of pigs and then would hire these herdsmen to follow them around and chase them down. And they raised these pigs, remember, mostly Gentiles, but even some of the Jews got in on it because they could just own the pigs and hire out someone to look after them. And then they'd sell them to mostly the Romans who were occupying the land at that time. And it was a business transaction. It was kind of like investing in some stocks that you had. Well, it's a lot different than in Papatar. In Papatar, um, every family owns about two to five pigs, and that is a huge investment to look after them. Every morning and every night, you feed your pigs with coconuts. And while they're eating, the owner will chew up this beetle nut, and um, it's a... It's a nut with a red liquid that they chew on and they they spit it on the nose of the pig because then they think the pig stays tame and will go off and not mess up the gardens but will come back at night to eat more coconut. They also use pigs to buy wives. Um, So a good wife, a great wife, will go for about 10 pigs and a couple of these shell necklaces. Now remember, with ten pigs, if every family owns two to five pigs, you're going to be looking to other families within your clan to buy this wife. So this is a clan decision. Are we going to spend our pigs on this woman for you? Now, when you have a feast or a funeral or a wedding, there's always pigs involved. And they do a luau type thing. And if when they present the pig, the head is facing out toward the ocean, they call that cast into the sea. And that means that it's paying back um, something that's been owed and everything is canceled now. If the pig is facing towards the custom house, then you're giving that pig, but you expect to be paid at some time in the future for it. They even have idioms about pigs. If something's really hard, they say it's like eating pig with hair. There's so much having to do with pigs. Now, in our story, it's a whole different thing. It also talked about tombs. Here in the U.S., cemeteries are often these peaceful, quiet, somber places where we go to reflect on those who have passed honor them, and be in solitude. In our story in Mark 5, it's an unclean area because of the dead. In Papatar, it's a taboo place because of the dead ancestor spirits that roam around tombs, which they believe in. Those spirits that are mentioned, those impure spirits in our story, here in the West, here in the Iowa We don't talk about demons and spirits too much. In Mark 5, 
they were understood to be there. Demons. These followers of Lucifer that were kicked out of heaven. These fallen angels. In, Papa, in Papatar, we have seen some demonic activity over the years. But we've also seen deception and lies that the people believed were spirits, but were not. Because Satan is the father of lies, and if he's already deceiving them, a lot of times, demons weren't even necessary. One of the sorcerers in our village who did witchcraft and who would call on these demons and spirits was a man by the name of Tokyo. And Tokyo eventually attended the Bible teaching. When we first moved in, he wanted nothing to do with us. But eventually, we befriended him and he started coming. And Tokyo got saved. And when he did, man, everything changed. And he became a Christian on fire, ready to tell everybody about Jesus. He eventually became one of the Bible teachers in our church. And after that, became one of the pastors. But early on in our ministry, after he was saved, and after he had a heart for people that were lost like he had been, in the middle of the night, he came and knocked on my door. And we lived on this little dirt road that went around, and there was an aid post about an hour away. And he said, hey, you got to hurry. They've got a guy. He's not from this village. He came down. He's a witch doctor. He's done some sorcery. They're going to kill him. we got to help him. And so in the middle of the night, I got up, and we got our truck, and we drove about a mile down and uh, looked for this man. Tokyo jumped out of the truck, and he's looking. he went in the hut in the house there, came back out, and he said, he's not there. So Tokyo ran into another house. Meanwhile, this gang that had come and beat him up and left him had gone back to get their machetes, and were going to come and finish him off. And so as we're waiting there for this guy, we're trying to find him, we see flashlights in the distance with this group coming towards us. And so Tokyo's run from house to house trying to find him, trying to be quiet. I got the truck there. I turn off all the lights, and this other group is coming. Finally, we got to a point where Tokyo said, it's not safe, we can't find him, we got to leave. So he jumps in the truck, and we, we take off. And just as we're leaving the clearing of the village and getting into the tall grass, someone jumps out in front of the truck and slams on the hood. And in that instant, I didn't know whether to gun it or to stop. And Tokyo goes, stop, stop, stop. He's with us. And we jumped out, and they dragged from the tall grass the body of this guy that had been beaten up. And he was not doing well. He was having a hard time breathing, covered in blood. One of his eyes had been gouged out. And we put him in the back of the truck. By this time, the gang had seen us. And so they were running after us. They're trying to get the guy in the truck. And here comes the gang with their machetes. So I slammed on the accelerator. We took off just as they were reaching the house. Now, I knew I had a mile to go. And so I just floored it all the way because I didn't know if they were going to come down to where our house was and take revenge. 
So in the middle of the night, I pulled up to the house, started yelling at my wife and kids, you got less than five minutes to be in the truck. We grabbed our emergency to-go bag, we got the kids out, got our computer, jumped in the truck with these guys, with the injured man, and took off. We drove about an hour down the road to that aid post, and there was no electricity. They used a kerosene lamp, held it over him. They were trying to stitch up the places they could, trying to help him out. We spent a few hours there, and things seemed to be a little better. And so we left when it was about dawn, got back to our house, and um, the gang hadn't showed up, and we were all right. I thought that was the end of the story, but it wasn't. Just like in Mark 5, we need to finish that story. So I'm going to read the rest of the story for us. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him go, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis, that's the ten towns, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. See, Jesus cared about this man and these people. And he gave the community a chance to see his power and to believe him and accept him. But he didn't force their decision. And what did the people do? They rejected him. They pleaded for him to go. Why? Was it because of his power? Was it because they were more comfortable with the demons than with the deliverer? Maybe it was the pigs. Maybe they had vested and they had some stock in the pigs. If that's the case, they cared more about their possessions than the possessed. Maybe it was the change. They preferred to leave things the way they had always been rather than allow the Son of God to change them in their community. I just wonder about us. Are we afraid maybe that God would ask us to do something crazy? Like go to one of those people groups that I've never heard? Are we scared to follow Jesus wholeheartedly because of what it might cost us financially? Maybe we're holding out because we prefer the things of Satan rather than the things of the Savior. Maybe it's just because we're comfortable the way things are now. Don't really want it to change. See, God's given us the message and the option to choose to follow Him. And I pray that we're not like the people of Gerasenes but that we're like this man who was demon-possessed and had his life changed and now wanted to follow Jesus with everything. 
The demon-possessed man sat fully clothed in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. You'll find in Scripture that people sitting at the feet of Jesus are always humble individuals who want to follow him. And that's what the man wanted. He wanted to go with him, but instead of Jesus bringing this man into Jewish territory, Jesus had an even better plan for him. Because, see, Jesus, his earthly ministry was going to be among the Jews, not really among these Gentiles in these ten towns. So what did he do? He sent this man as his representative to these people groups. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus sent him to an area where he was not going to be going. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, where there's ten towns, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. He was Christ's ambassador. He was the first missionary sent out by Jesus. An unlikely candidate. Just like Tokyun, the witch doctor who had been saved and was growing. Our church had the opportunity in Papatar to send out our first missionaries among our own people group, the Papatar. And it was Tokyun and his family. And they moved up into the mountains, about a five-hour hike up into the mountains to another village. And Tokyo took the time to learn those relationships there. He and his wife, they already knew the language, but they began to learn that culture and that community. And then he started a literacy school to teach the people how to read and write. And then he started teaching through the Bible. And a church was born. And we weren't living there, but occasionally we would go and visit. Well, a couple years ago, I got to go. And Tokyo said, hey, if you can spend this afternoon with us, we got a group of about five guys that, man, they, they are on fire and they want to grow spiritually and they actually want to become Bible teachers too. So will you take the afternoon to just talk with them, begin to teach them, and can we do this together? So I was excited. So I, I went up to this village and I'm teaching through and at one of our breaks, I said to Tokyo, okay, um, I was just asking questions about these guys. And I said, what about the guy in the green shirt? The one with the eye that is kind of messed up. He said, you don't remember? Remember years ago when you were teaching me and I came and knocked. And we went to rescue that witch doctor. He wasn't from around here. He was from another village. It was this village. And when we came, and he realized who I was, he wanted to hear this message. And so he's been sitting through the teaching, and he's saved, and he wants to be a Bible teacher. Because, see, God uses unlikely candidates to take his message out. He can take a witch doctor that was being accused and beat up 
with one eye and make him a Bible teacher. He can take a man possessed by demons, crazy guy in the tombs, and make him the first missionaries to these ten towns. And he can use each one of us to be his message bearers to the world, both in our own communities and to those unreached people groups that are throughout the world. Father, thank you that you choose the weak, that you care about the nations, that you rescue the perishing. Thank you that you've sent us to be your representatives to the world, to our neighbors, to every ethnos. May we be more faithful to follow you wholeheartedly and take your message to others. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.